Jasmine Falk Dickerson, welcome to the podcast. As a member of the Nez Perce tribe, my guest has grown up in Washington State in various indigenous environments, on the urban reservation, as he refers to it, and in Christian churches that discouraged native practices. All this led him to find himself and formally learn the important history of the tribal indigenous native peoples of America, making him an advocate and historian with striking storytelling skills. Today, I want you to meet Kyle Pittman. I must confess that I was slightly intimidated when I decided to schedule this interview uh, for the simple fact that I, as an immigrant that did not grow up and learn the history of America as well as I've been scrambling to do in recent years, I, I worried that I had very little background information and knowledge to appropriately address this interview about the Native Indigenous Peoples of America. But Kyle is a gem. I, I know Kyle on a personal level because he's a colleague of mine and we work together. And he and I have had such amazing conversations that I felt like those conversations needed to all be packed in one awesome podcast so that we can invite you in. And that's exactly what happened during this particular episode. Kyle is a historian. He's an extremely informed and educated uh, person about the general idea of uh, tribal indigenous um, identity, but also very specific to the way in which we have, I think, interpreted or translated the meaning of being indigenous and tribal and native. So I will not continue to explain to you what it is that Kyle, uh, the insight that Kyle brought to us in this episode, I just encourage you to um, listen with attention and really focus on some of the aspects of the things he shared. Because while to some of you, they may not be as new pieces of information, for me, a lot of it was very, very enlightening. So I acknowledge that. And I, um, with deep gratitude, Thank Kyle for his time to take us down that path. And I invite you to Kyle's classroom today. Here we go. Hey, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I, I confess to you that I'm very excited and a little nervous about today's episode because it's such an important topic. So welcome for joining me, and um, how's it going? It's going really good, and uh, I want to say thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion we have coming up here. It's a very important one, and it's, uh, it's a much-needed one, and one that I think we still don't have enough happening around this particular topic and conversation, which is, it's not really even a topic, it's just uh, a crucial way of our existence, especially as Americans. So um, I introduced you in my uh, brief introduction before we started the episode, and I said a little something about you, but I would love for the listeners to know a little more about you. And so I always feel like starting in childhood is the best place to let the world know who you are because of where you came from. So can you tell me a little bit about your family and your upbringing? 
Yeah, sure. So, um, well, first I'll say, um, you know, I, I do identify as an indigenous person. Um, I am this person Yakima. Um, my family comes from the town of Lapway, Idaho. It's the seat of the Nespers government. Um, I, I also have uh, other ancestry to um, Irish English background from my dad's side. Um, but myself, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington on the Puyallup Reservation. Um, and it was kind of, it's an urban um, area. So it wasn't just uh, like a rural reservation like most are. Um, in fact, I think it's the only urban reservation, one that's directly located in the middle of a city, um, Tacoma being one of the biggest cities in Washington. So it was uh, more of a inner city slash reservation setting. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, in my household, um, you know, I grew up with my dad, um, who passed away when I was eight years old. Um, but I also lived with my mom. I lived with my grandma, um, my paternal grandma, for a time um, before she passed away. She passed away in two thousand and one. Um, and then I have three brothers and a sister as well, and they were always in and out of the house throughout different periods of time. Um, but then also living right there on the reservation, you're related to a lot of people. So I've got a lot of you know, nieces and cousins and people who would come by. And so it was a, a very close knit family situation. Um, I went to Chief Leshai, um, which is an Indian school um, ran by the Puyallup tribe for a short time. Um, but then I transitioned to finish my education um, at Roosevelt Elementary School. And after I attended there, I was actually homeschooled through middle school and half of high school um, until I went to Bates Technical College, also in Tacoma. And that's where I was able to graduate with both my uh, high school diploma and my associates in applied science. That's amazing. Wow. Um, and you grew up in a home where you were the youngest? Yes. Yes. Okay. I was the youngest of all my siblings. And uh uh, my siblings are all actually half siblings, okay. um, but we've never considered each other that, you know, we were always a close family. And so brothers, brothers, sisters, sister. A hundred percent. I agree with that because that's kind of how our blended family is as well. So uh, tell me a little bit about your relationship with your tribe, because it sounds really interesting the way you describe this kind of urban uh, reservation, if you will. So yeah. how did that translate into your relationship with your tribe and your identity with your tribe? Yeah, so good question. You know, I was raised um, with my tribal identity as being um, someone from the Nez Perce people. And, you know, today I identify as Nez Perce and Yakima, and that's because after doing a lot of uh, research into my family history and um, realizing I've got many relatives from the Yakima tribe as well, um, and reestablishing those connections, going to the reservation there and visiting with family um, who, who were related to, uh, I realized that I wanted to honor those roots as well. But for the most part, you know, I would really identify my my indigenous background as being more of an urban Indian um, or pan-Indian. Growing up in the city, and I think this is the case, too, for a lot of um, American Indians in the United States, um, many of our ancestors, our grandparents, we were removed to cities um, during relocation and termination era, which was uh, from the 1950s to through the 1970s. And during this period, the government really tried to force a lot of natives off reservations and into cities in order to have them find jobs and to help um, assimilate and Americanize um, the indigenous populations. Sure. Um, but 
because of that, right, you get you get a large number of uh, indigenous groups in cities, and that this in itself is kind of developed like a pan-Indian identity, where you adopt you might adopt beliefs or practices of various other tribes, and a lot of that really is a way to help retain culture because being removed from the reservations, which were um, hot spots of cultural heritage um, and traditional customs, where those things were really intensified and centered um, after, you know, removal periods and genocide, Mm. um, being forced to the cities really forced uh, a lot of Native families to lose their cultures and have to adopt ways to maintain that identity and relationship. And so I say that because I didn't grow up on my tribe's reservation, which Mm. is in Idaho. Mm -hmm. Um, We would go visit family every year and we maintained those ties like that. So that's why I still identify um, myself as a a particular particular tribe rather than more you know of that pan-indian identity but i really do come from that pan-indian upbringing more or less um and also growing up in washington on uh, the lands of the puyallup tribe and now i live in the lands of um, the nisqually people coast salish peoples um you know it really is my home too and i i participate in some of the practices and customs that are over here as well through my affiliation with those other tribes um so while I still identify myself as Nez Perce and Yakima, um, I acknowledge that my background isn't what a lot of people would consider the stereotypical Native or the or what we um, as, as Natives would look at as being a res Indian mm. um, or a traditional Native. I think I have tradition. I think I do practice traditions in my own ways and I do keep to them what I've been taught. But for the most part, you know, my identity as an Indigenous person has been framed in this context of an urban and pan-Indian upbringing. That's amazing. I, and honestly, I don't think that enough people know this or understand the importance of what you just described because there's this uh, quick-to-rush you know, labeling and putting people in this monolithic voice. I want to talk to you about that. But before I go into that, I do want to say and preface right away that I have talked to you before we started recording. And I did gain permission from you to say certain words or to ask things uh, and describe things in certain ways that perhaps the listener might find maybe offensive or triggering because of my Um, non-identity with the Native tribes, but I did ask you permission to go there. And one of the reasons I love talking to you, Kyle, is because I can talk to you openly and freely without any worry and judgment. Um, Your intention is always to educate, and I admire that so much about you. That being said, I do want to immediately talk about the difference between using labels or um, words such as Native, Indigenous, and Indian, because you tend to use the word Indian American a lot. I've heard you describe yourself that way, not only today in the interview, but even from the moment I met you. Um, And that it's similar to African American and Black. I think it's similar to Middle Eastern and Arab, or I think a lot of different communities have different ways to describe themselves. So tell me, tell us about the difference in those labels, where and how it's appropriate to use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot because, um, you know, I, I also um, identify myself as a public historian. Um, I do a lot of uh, history work and I study history. Um, and so this comes up a, as a question, both as a historical question, but also just a really common social question. Um, you know, what is the appropriate term to use when referring to Native Americans or what do I prefer? And I'll say that um, – 
each of these words, whether it's American Indian, indigenous, Native American, Native, First Nations, or my tribe's names for ourselves, they have their own context, their own origins, their own meanings. So I'll start I'll start with maybe talking about American Indian, right? This is probably the most common that you, you hear natives call themselves Indian, or it's even in the name of tribes, like the Puyallup tribe of Indians. That's their official title mm-hmm. as a tribe um, or the Nisqually Indian tribe. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why do people, why, why do natives keep using these words that a lot of people perceive as misnomers? Um, and the, the real, the, you know, the real straightforward reason is just because we have to. Um, the United States, over its course of interactions with tribes, made treaties with Indian tribes. Mm. In the Constitution, we are identified as Indian tribes. Mm-hmm. And so there's this argument, um, both historically and legally, that there's a precedent that we continue to use the word Indian to identify because at some point, if we decide to refuse that term, there's grounds to say that, oh, well, we can terminate the treaties with Indian tribes because wow. that's who we made it with. Um, you know, that's kind of my professional opinion that I that I would state. So, like, legally speaking, mm. tribes are cemented as Indians in United States law and in our relationships with the United States as a government-to-government um, type relationship. So it's a matter of sovereignty and how we're perceived and, and um, relation, governmental relations as to why that phrase continues in its use. But moving more towards the so- social aspect of that, um, you know, there's a real strong preference that I perceive, and I think this is true of myself too, um, of a desire to actually have control over what we call ourselves. Um, you know, there are a lot of natives who don't agree with the term Indian, who mm. don't want to be called Indian. Um, you know, there's this pers- there, there's the idea that Columbus came over here, right? He got lost and he thought he was in India. Right. So he called everybody Indians. And there's actually quite a bit of history behind that, um, which is a little bit off topic, but, uh, Yes, Columbus did give uh, did was partially responsible for that misnomer, mm-hmm. um, calling us Indios. But there's a lot of history behind where he actually thought he was, if he believed he was in the uh, if, uh, in India, um, or what Indians at that time in the subcontinent of India were actually called. Wow. So. Yeah, I I tend not to focus so much on whether that term was um, incorrect or not, but rather dealing with the reality um, that that's what we have been called for hundreds of years um, by colonizers. And then in a reclamation kind of way, right, we've taken that term and adopted it, and now we use it too. So I respect other natives who disagree with the term, um, and that's that leads into the whole point about it where it's like we should be able to decide for ourselves what we're called. And if I decide that for myself the term Indian or American Indian is appropriate, I want to be able to say that without being told, no, you're a Native American by someone who's not Native. Thank Does that you. make sense? Okay. Yeah. You literally went and arrived exactly where I was hoping you would because as a multicultural person myself, I've heard people claim where uh, phrases or words are offensive that belong to cultures that I belong to. And, you know, I I ask, I question, I'm like, what gave you the authority to say that this is offensive? Well, because it is. Well, no, it's not. It depends on who you're talking to. And I I 100% agree with that. And I really admire that assertive kind of stance on 
this is how it is, this is why it's this way, and then live and let live. So thank you for describing that. But that does also lead into the conversation that's broader than that, and that is about the Native American cultures being viewed as a single entity instead of recognizing that it is not. Before we go into that, just because I want to make sure that the listeners not only acknowledge your authority on this topic today because of your own personal history, upbringing, and uh, identity, but also because you have actually studied this. You have received a degree focused on um, Native studies. So um, do you want to tell me just real quick about that and then you know your aspirations educationally because you are definitely a, a, an expert in the field? Sure. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, re- I um, started my higher education career going to Bates Technical College, and there I actually um, studied carpentry, and I became a, a union carpenter's apprentice. But um, after I graduated and I went into the trade, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And uh, I actually heard from a friend about this place called Northwest Indian College, and it's a what we call a TCU, a Tribal College University. And it's owned and operated by a tribe. And they actually had a satellite campus not too far from where I was living at the time and where I still currently live. Um, And so I registered, I enrolled, registered and went to classes. And I started um, working on a bachelor's degree towards uh, Native studies um, in leadership. And that's really where I started to, um, you know, take a more academic approach to to um, to applying and talking about my culture and my experiences um, in a way that can help speak to these issues on sovereignty, to help speak to these social and political issues that uh, we as Indigenous peoples face. And um, after about a year of study there, I then transferred to the Evergreen State College, where I finished out my bachelor's degree um, in the Native Pathways program and emphasized in Native American and Indigenous studies. And I worked my whole time while I was there at Evergreen um, as well, and I continue to work there today as an admissions counselor. Um, and I actually, in this fall, I will be going back to that undergrad program um, that I graduated from, Native Pathways, um, to help assist as a teacher's assistant. So amazing kind of giving back to the community that way yeah but in terms of uh, what i'm working on now i'm currently a student at george mason university working on a graduate certificate in digital public humanities um so kind of taking the study of history and bringing it to that digital realm which is stuff i already do um i help moderate the largest online public history forum on the internet known as ask historians where i help to answer people's questions about history um, in a public setting yeah Yeah, you're perfect <laughs> so the the certificate I'm working on at um, George Mason will um, you know really help to augment the skills I've been developing while doing that um, kind of volunteer work. But aside from that, I, w- I will also be attending the Master's in Public Administration uh, program at Evergreen in the fall with a co- in the concentration for tribal governance. So my education is really being funneled this way towards Indigenous histories, um, federal Indian law and policy, um, and Indigenous research methodologies. Those are really where I center my um, focuses for study. Yeah, it's it's so exciting because we share an alma mater and we met at Evergreen. uh, And Mm -hmm. I remember, I think it was my first day on the job as a student ambassador and you were there. And I think it was your first day also in the admissions department. And we started talking and I realized immediately that 
okay, this conversation is going to enrich me so much in my own personal understanding because I've been an immigrant here for 21 years. But I've re- and I lived in Wyoming, which is considered also a state fairly uh, rich in indigenous uh, history. And yet there's really very little hands-on information that you can easily obtain unless you actually go seek it or, or, or are born here and really know how to navigate those particular opportunities. So that I really appreciated. And, uh, and, I, and I love that we are part of a culture like Evergreen that really has emphasized the importance of focusing on the indigenous and native uh, peoples of our area. You know, our building has that beautiful longhouse and now a couple of other, this is not a promo for Evergreen. I'm just <laughs> highlighting the importance of recognizing this within our communities. And, uh, and that's a wonderful thing. I love that you're a part of that. You have really enriched the program and the culture there. That being said, now we can jump into more of your explanation of the monolithic voice of the, you know, peoples of the native, various native tribes and how they're usually lumped in that one umbrella uh, entity. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think that's one of the most important things to address. Yeah, so... In the United States today, um, Indian tribes are recognized through a federal process that the United States government has established. Um, And through this federal recognition process, there are 577 federally recognized tribes. Wow. Plus or minus one or two. Um, there's Over the last couple of years, there's been several more tribes that have been um, recognized. Um, just a note to comment on that, you know, is that it, it is a colonial system that tribes are recognized through. Um, and unfortunately, it's one of those necessary evils um, in our world today for if tribes who have made treaties or who have historical interactions with the United States um, are able to operate on this government-to-government relationship and exercise their in- inherent sovereignty that they rightfully do, um, they need to get this recognition from the United States federal government. But um, as a caveat to that, uh, a colonial government like the United States has no right determining the um, indigeneity of any any group, person, um, whatsoever. And so while it is a, a product um, of our reality of this colonial system we live under, um, by no means is it um, the utmost definitive factor for um, identifying an indigenous person or an indigenous tribe. Um, so that being said, as I, you know, like I mentioned, there's um, over 577 um federally recognized Indian tribes. There's also many more that have state recognition. Um, In Washington state, there are 29 federally recognized tribes and I believe five to seven state recognized tribes or tribes that are fighting for federal recognition. And this is an important fact to acknowledge because it is not a simple task to approach an indigenous person. If you have questions about their culture or their worldview or their um, experiences and to assume that they speak for all indigenous peoples. In fact, it's not even really correct to think that one individual person speaks for their tribe. Um, And this is a big thing in indigenous cultures. And I'm sure you probably have experienced this too in your own way um, where outsiders will see you as some sort of ambassador for the whole culture. <laughs> oh, yes. And really, it, 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 that in itself is a faux pas because we can only speak for ourselves. Right. And this is very true in indigenous cultures where you don't assume 
to speak for other people. It's a sign of um, disrespect to do that. Um, you should only be speaking for yourself and your experiences and those who you have gained permission to speak for. You know, so if I was working for the Nespers tribe, for example, and I was in a position, a representative position, right, then I'd have more leeway to say, yes, you know, this is the feelings of the tribe or the tribal government. But I don't. And so I always like to um, put in a disclaimer, you know, that my opinions and my experiences are related to me mm-hmm. as an indigenous person, as a Nez Perce Indian, but I'm not speaking for other Nez Perce people. Um, and that concept really should be taken, right? Extrapolate from that and apply it to the whole. Sure. Um, there, you know, especially today in the United States where there's that, where there's a race is a big discussion right now um, where people have a lot of opinions and a lot of feelings about it. There is this desire for those who want to do the right thing to gain more of an understanding. And so, right, they get it in their mind. Well, I should go talk to the people of this group. Mm -hmm. And that's a good step. They definitely should do that, but they're also coming from a place of what is, you know, really ignorance, not in a bad way. They're, They're wanting to help. But it is ignorance at the end of the day. And so sometimes they they commit this faux pas where thinking that um, tribes are one big monolith. And even more so, you know, when we really analyze this kind of situation and, and break it down, tribes have a a deeper layer to to it as well as a group in the United States. Um, because tribes are not just defined by um, the perception of race or ethnicity, but tribes are political entities within the United States. Mm. Um, all of those 577 so tribes are polities. They're sovereign entities that maintain a uh, government-to-government relationship with the United States. Mm. And so although the United States in its colonial tendencies has handicapped the ability for tribes to exercise their sovereignty to the utmost, it has been well established even by the United States all the way up to the Supreme Court over hundreds of years that tribes are recognized as sovereign entities. And so that adds a really um, a deeper political layer too, to being able to understand um, the kinds of relationships that uh, Indians have with all forms of government, whether it's local, state, or federal. And this is compounded even more by history. Um, in 1924, the United States passed the Indian Citizenship Act, which declared every uh, person, every Indian within the United States to be an American citizen. Wow. And Wow, this, this right. I'm sorry, you said 1924? Is that what you said? 1924. What? Wow. Yep. And uh that further compounds it, right? Because now you have uh the recognition of of Indians who were not just seen as being um party to sovereign entities, but now they're uh, you know, included in the federal government, right? So anybody who is enrolled in a tribe, meaning that they have citizenship or membership with a federally recognized tribe, ultimately is a dual citizen mm. um, in a large degree, right? Being governed not just by the United States Constitution, but also by the constitutions of their of their particular tribes. Wow. And this this is all lost on, on the greater American public, right? And because of this, it creates the confusion and the um, problems that arise when trying to understand and communicate with Indian tribes, recognizing that we're not 
a monolith, but that Indian country, kind of the um, collective term for all of the lands and peoples that comprise uh, indigenous nations within the United States, um, is a very diverse place. Um, You know, so it's difficult sometimes, I think, for some to grasp that, um, not realizing the level of nuance. But this is true, right, when you break it down even more into the tribes themselves. So, you know, I identify uh, as a descendant from the Nez tribe, but within that tribe, there are actually several bands of Nez Perce that roamed throughout our traditional lands. And so you've got bands who were from, you know, downriver or maybe who are from upriver, maybe who were from what is now Oregon. Um, and so all of that considered, right, that creates cultural and even linguistic differences between um, members of the Nez Perce tribe. Um, similarly, the Yakima tribe, which is recognized as one tribe, is actually a confederation of tribes. I believe 14 um, make up the wow. totality of them. Yeah, Unbelievable. What, would you, what you describe really reminds me, and I've said this to you before, it reminds me of the Arab world because it's exactly mm-hmm. the same. It, it is like a, an entire continent has been, you know, taken and assumed as one big entity. And when we go to other continents, when we go to Africa or even Europe or... Asia, which is you know the biggest, there are so many different peoples and different tribes and different ethnicities and different cultures within that large picture. And uh, and it sounds like the more and more I try to understand and educate myself about the original native peoples, indigenous peoples of this land, and you go from the very top to the very bottom of both continents, it's amazing the degree of variety and diversity there is within the indigenous cultures. You used a word that I uh, heard a couple of times, and it's the um, the word tribe, which mm-hmm. currently is considered a little bit of a trigger word for people. And I'm constantly seeing on social media how no one is entitled to use the word tribe, that it's... Um, considered offensive or falls in under the umbrella of, of, you know, racist um, appropriation and things like that. And mm-hmm. I have, you know, a little bit of a different take on that and a little bit of sensitivity around that. I'm going to tell you right away. So I did a Google search for the purpose of our conversation today, and the word tribe comes out as... Um, let's see. So the word tribe is uh, a group of people or a community with similar values or interests, a group with a common ancestor or a common leader. For example, a tribe that is called Deadheads is Grateful Dead fans. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the more appropriate example is a tribe that's like uh, Choctaw American Indians. That's obviously a Native American tribe, an indigenous tribe. Where do you stand on the word tribe? And when you give your answer, I'm going to elaborate from my personal perspective as well. Sure thing. Um, So similarly to the word Indian, um, you know, there's a lot of context and there's a lot of baggage that comes with the word tribe. Um, Speaking in in a historical or academic sense, the word tribe has often been used to marginalize indigenous peoples um, because it has the implication of low social social and political development, um, a low civilized status, right? Um, And so often tribe is used to refer to a group that 
has closely connected kinship ties. Um, but the implications and the use of that word over time, again, leads to, to this idea or perception that a tribe is lowly developed. Mm. Um, and it, that is problematic in that sense. Um, again, it also delegitimizes indigenous um, peoples, at least in the United States, um, from being able to um, acclaim our sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're a tribe, you're not a nation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't the case, as we've just discussed, because tribes do hold that sovereign political status. Right. So in a lot of ways, the word tribe is used in a way where the word nation should be used. Um, this is used both by scholars, but also by um, Native individuals ourselves. Um, again, going back, it's similar to the word Indian, where we've kind of reclaimed this word in a lot of ways to continue its use. And really, its continued usage is also a legacy of colonialism. Um, you know, in 1934, the United States passed what was called the Indian Reorganization Act. Mm. And under this act, any tribes who were included in it um, were given a template constitution to be able to create a constitution to govern their tribes. Mm. And this was a way to um, assimilate tribes again further into the American system of things, um, but also to give tribes the ability to interact with the United States on the levels and terms that the United States wanted to interact with tribes. And so tribes created their own constitutions and in doing so had to declare names for themselves. And that's where you see stuff like uh, Nez Perce tribe of Indians or, oh. or Nez the Nez Perce tribe, or you have um, confederated tribes of the Colville Reservation or so forth. Um, these names that, that come from um, colonial origins or from the circumstances created by colonial systems. Um, so it's, it, it is a, a legacy, a vestige of that that we deal with, but that has become into that kind of reclaimed colloquial status that we continue to use um, because it works for us. Mm -hmm. um, we know what we mean when we say the tribe mm -hmm. um, for uh, for Native individuals, when we talk about the tribe, we're, we know we're not talking about a lowly developed, uncivilized people. We're talking about our government. We're mm -hmm. talking about our distinction from the rest of the United States, from other groups. Um, because although that, that word tribe has kind of been appropriated in a lot of ways and is used for more um, mundane or facetious or common, deadheads. commonplace mm -hmm. deadheads, right? Yeah. Um, really, when you talk about tribes, at least in the United States, and at least from my experiences, what pops into your head are Indians. What pops into your head are sure. indigenous peoples. And so tribes have a, a way to be able to use that word to our advantage in a way that it means something to us or we know we recognize what its meaning is. But it's contextual. So we would use that right with ourselves or when we're talking about entities that are named like that or when we talk about tribal governments or tribal colleges. Um, but in a political sense, too, right, depending on the context, it might be better to use the word nation. Um, so, you know, if I talk about indigenous communities in the United States and I have a political point I'm making when I'm talking about sovereignty, I'm going to talk about us as nations because mm -hmm. that's what we are. And that's mm -hmm. what I want people to perceive us as yeah. um, because not everybody's going to be on the same page with the the colloquial um, use or the accepted uh, insider use of the word tribe yeah. or even the academic use of the word tribe. Um, but in, in terms of how, it, how that word's been appropriated, 
I don't think that one's as problematic as some other terms that have been appropriated, mm. um, mostly because you know, as someone who who fights for um, indigenous rights and, and constantly works on these tribal issues, um, I'm not overly concerned with the use of the word tribe because I know it's academic use, um, his, it's historical use, it's political use, it's societal use, um, and that I know that it will ver- what people mean when they use it varies on context. And I think there are other words or phrases or um, even even more bigger issues, uh, more material things that should be focused on than trying to um, overly educate people about the use of the word tribe. Um, remembering that it was a colonial term forced onto us. And so to a degree, you know, from my personal experience, while there is a use, there is a utility in using it and even a, um, an upbringing with it um, that I've got, you know, in a personal way, I've got ties to that word. I also acknowledge that we don't have a monopoly on that word. And in a way, you know, the, in the future, it'd be nice if that word wasn't what we used um, because again, it comes from that, that colonial legacy. So that's kind of my opinion on it. Yeah. Um, it's really nuanced and, and kind of broad. Ultimately, I would chalk it up to just saying, you know, the use of that term is is contextual. It's mm-hmm. always contextual. Um, and as a historian, that's what I'm also all about. You know, it's, it's all yeah. about the context. Absolutely. How was this used? When was this used? Why was it used? Um, yeah. And then from there, you know, when you get adept to thinking like that, you can start to make quicker judgments as to whether, you know, is this a moment I want to educate someone on this word or is this something I want to let pass? Yeah, no, I, that answer is perfect. Uh, The reason why for me, it's become a little bit of a sensitive issue is because I come also from a culture that is very tribal. Arabs within themselves have multiple tribes, hundreds of tribes, and every tribe tells its own story. And the word tribe is an identity. In Arabic, the word is gabila, which means tribe. And so a lot of people in the Arab world find their heritage and their origins from, you know, tracing down what tribe they come from. Now, today, still, people are very, very much within their tribes active, the tribes are alive and well and governing in their own way under obviously other governments, but it's still a a common thing to see and to hear about tribes. Marriages are still based on compatible tribes. It's still very much of a practice that's alive and well. And while, you know, my family is a little more modern and obviously culturally mixed, there is still the understanding for a person with Arab heritage, what the importance of that word tribe means, not just from the family standpoint, but also from the collective. And so as an immigrant here that is trying to make sure that I integrate myself and, you know, become the most uh, culturally educated American I can be, I also find that there are situations where there is an overlap with some of the language and some of the experiences and some of the cultures that we have all brought into the mixture that is now the American you know, people in the American culture and American heritage. So I appreciate what you're saying, and I'm 100% on board with that, for sure. Um, next thing I want to talk about, which ties into everything that is part of the Native American identity and experience, is religion. Now, you grew up with uh, a more interesting exposure to religion, and I definitely want you to tell me a little bit about your upbringing with religion and then expand our horizon in terms of how religion and Native peoples collide 
uh, in a in a harmonious way because there's such an image of the native peoples and indigenous people as being very spiritual and having their own religious practices. Some judge it because they know nothing about it. Other peoples are inspired and want to almost uh, mimic it and assimilate. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So um, definitely a, a, a broad um, area subject to talk about um, uh, when it comes to religion and spirituality in relation to tribes. And even the there's a big political aspect to that, too, which we can talk about. But um, personally, um, I was raised in a kind of a religiously mixed household. You know, my um, my dad has some native ancestry, but by and large was white um, and uh, my mom being a uh, Nez person also who through our Yakima side comes through um, was raised in, in Indian Christian households, let's say mm-hmm. um, in Lapway, where our family comes from today, there are seven different churches denominations and Lapway is a town of about population, about 1200 people. Wow. So it's yeah, a lot of denominations for such a, a small place. Um, and so I know that, uh, my mom's parents, um, and grandparents, you know, they attended church. That's where they would go. Um, for my dad and his upbringing, you know, his dad, my grandpa used to identify as a Christian, but as he's gotten older, you know, he starts to identify more with the indigenous ancestry, um, that they have in the, uh, in the family. And my dad, um, he lived right on the reservation, as I said earlier, with us, um, all of us together there in, in Tacoma. And he really adopted a lot of the customs and practices um, of the Indians around him. He worked for the Puyallup tribe of Indians at the at um, their treatment center um, when it was still standing. And he was a counselor for drug and alcohol addiction. Oh, wow. um, and so in a place like that, there is a big focus um, on healing and spiritual healing in particular for um, a lot of Indian people. So he was just naturally exposed to that by nature of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say that he identified as Christian, not that I ever got old enough to the point to have a conversation with him about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really did take on a lot of the practices that he was sur- surrounded by. Um, and he was actually buried in the uh, Puyallup Tribal Cemetery right behind where he used to work. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we we used to attend, my family, we used to attend the Indian Fellowship, which is actually in the same cemetery. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, it's a Presbyterian church where the pastor was three different tribes, um, kind of came from three different tribal backgrounds, including this purse. Um, and he's still the pastor there to this day. Um, we would go there occasionally. Um, now it wasn't every Sunday, but regularly enough that I remember sitting in the pews and, um, we, we would add one of the, um, I don't is Presbyterian. I don't know if Presbyterians have nuns, but I always called her the nun because she looked like a nun <laughs> um, would take us to the, to the back room and we'd kind of play games or have Bible study or something like that. Um, and my dad's side of the family, excluding uh, my dad and uh, my grandpa, you know, they were very religious, um, very Christian. Mm. Um, and, uh, and of course there were those Christian elements from my mom's side of the family, as I mentioned with all the churches in, in Lapway. So 
for my early life, really, I uh, was brought up in a more or less Christian household, but with um, Indian influence, Mm pan-Indian influence. I wouldn't have identified as a Christian, but Mm -hmm. that's, you know, if I had to say now, looking back, that's Mm -hmm. what it was kind of like. Um, After my dad passed away, my mom and I went through a pretty rocky time in terms of our experiences in life. Um, where we continued to live in Tacoma, but we moved off the reservation to the um, west side of the town of the city. And uh, soon after that, we, you know, we went to a couple other churches with some friends, um, but eventually we stopped going. Um, not too long after my dad died, though, my mom began studying with some friends from college um, that where she had met them, and they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And in 2007, she got baptized as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And Mm -hmm. then in 2009, I got baptized. And from that period of about 2007 through 2017, we were uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. A whole decade. Wow. Yeah. Attending Kingdom Hall meetings, um, going door to door out in their field ministry to preach and convert people. Um, I got to the point where I was what we call a pioneer, um, someone who so – I'll talk about this in a second, but I shouldn't say we. <laughs> I don't identify as a witness anymore. Oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> talk about that in uh, but where they call uh, some pioneer who spends 70 hours at least a month going door to door in this preaching work. And I was also a ministerial servant. So I was like an assistant to the elders in the congregation, elder wow. being more of a, of a position mm-hmm. rather than um, like a, a status of a, of a person based on their um, wisdom and age and mm-hmm. experience, um, kind of like the pastors of the mm-hmm. congregation. Um, so I would assist with giving sermons or um, what was called public talks um, and leading groups out into field service in my local area. Um, and yeah, I did that for about, 10 years um, of our lives. But as we got towards the end of our time as witnesses, my mom and I, we started to realize that it wasn't what we thought it was. Um, You know, it provided a, an outlet for our grief after the passing of my dad, um, because they have particular beliefs about the resurrection of of, uh, loved ones who have passed on. But eventually we started to realize that we were not, allowed to be ourselves as witnesses. We were not allowed to practice our culture, basically. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a very long story. Um, but to, to kind of get to the point, we realized it was an, anti-Indian. We weren't allowed mm-hmm. to be who we wanted to be. And as we went further down this route, we actually started becoming more distant from um, our cultures and our families. Wow. Um, which that's ultimately what led to us um, separating ourselves from being witnesses and no longer identifying as such or attending their congregational meetings. Um, it was very damaging to us and our culture. Wow. It was damaging to our family because they have a very um, closed off um, nature of the religion um, where outsiders are what they call worldly people, people who aren't witnesses, people of the world, people mm-hmm. who are influenced by Satan. Um, Muggles, and so, basically. 
Right, right. And so in that, right, is your family as well. And so you're encouraged to, um, if you're going to interact with your family, you know, it should be with the purpose of converting them, of preaching to them. Um, you shouldn't practice your your former beliefs or, or faith um, because that's an affront to God. Um, and for us in particular, we were regularly encouraged. I wouldn't say we were outright um, barred, but we were discouraged um, from going to the reservation and seeing our families wow. because they had this perception of the reservation being a place of spiritism and, and um, you know, heathenness oh my right? goodness wow. Which, this kind of this kind of idea of indians that people think might have died out hundreds of years ago or at oh. least by the 1900s but no it's still very real there's Alive still people who well. think we're pagans yeah. and heathens and yeah wow. it's crazy um wow and so we we started to see that and as we started to grow you know grow our interest in becoming closer to our culture again we started to feel that they were distancing us from them um, and I myself having a position of authority within the congregation, um, you know, was often penalized or what they called counseled. Um, they would take you to the back room and, and give you a talking to, um, wow. to correct you from your wrong ways. And eventually it got to the point where we just, we just couldn't do that anymore. Um, but what had happened is that by that point, we were so involved with the organization on witnesses on the inside, they called the organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, we were so involved with the organization that we had severely damaged our relationship to our culture and to our family as well. Oh, my goodness. Um, because the, the people in that religion became basically a surrogate family. And so due to that, um, when we left, we really didn't have a whole lot of friends. Um, we had moved out to where we currently live. Be, to be closer to our home congregation. Mm. So we had moved to a completely new area, removed ourselves from um, where where I grew up, Tacoma, removed ourselves from the reservation. My mom still worked for the Puyallup Tribe of Indians at this time, so there was that connection. But by and large, we were removed from our social life and our culture outside of being witnesses. And so it's been a really, it's been a struggle really to yeah. try and rekinder that um, by, you know, but we're doing so, you know, by going back and visiting our family, by going to um, the reservation, um, by getting involved with the, the tribal communities in our areas and getting rekindling that and reconnecting to our cultures. But I, you know, all of this is kind of a prelude to say that the religious experience for Indians is quite varied as well, just as diverse as our cultures. Sure. And um, it, depending on the context we talk about it, it can be very, um, very different. So I mentioned earlier, right, that there's a political aspect to this as well. Right. As does all religion in all right. over the world. Right, exactly. Um, and I got to look something up right quick. To remember yeah, absolutely. The, to remember the exact date. Um, but speaking in that political um, aspect, oops, I looked up the wrong thing. Um, Indian tribes were actually not allowed legally to practice our beliefs until 1978. Till um, 1978, I was already in this world. Mm -hmm. I was four years old. Unbelievable. Yep. It, it was illegal for Indians to practice their faiths, at least openly. Um, and then in 1978, that's when the Indian Religious, um, Religious Freedom Act was passed that finally lifted um, – uh, penal, penalization for wow. tribes practicing, openly practicing their beliefs. Um, 
and so you know tribes who practice their spiritual beliefs and their their traditional religions that have been historically marginalized and actively oppressed even to such recent times um, you know, in 1978, my mom was 18 years old. So it's like wow. over those 20, first 20 years of she her life, adult. it would have been illegal. She was right, an adult. Right. Yeah. She was an adult. Yeah. Um, there, you know, there's this really big overshadowing um, protection that we have of our beliefs and our faiths and a closed offness that's really difficult to access, even for people like us who are Indian and who are wanting to reconnect to our faiths. And that's very um, understandable. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. When you go through that kind of um, oppression, you don't want to share these things because they, they because now, as opposed to being um, disavowed or, uh, from being able to practice those things, now you've got people who want to get involved in those things and who want to take advantage of it. Probably the big, big, biggest example is with the Native American church, which um, became a religious faith born out of um, Indians who could not practice openly their beliefs, but who decided to make a church utilizing Christian traditions um, and settings and kind of meanings to code their um, their beliefs. Um, and in the Native American church, there's this there's the use of peyote, a cactus, um, a hallucinogen. Wow. Now that it's legal to practice that faith, um, you get a lot of people who try to take advantage wow. of peyote as a, as a ceremonial item. Um, it is illegal, federally illegal for anybody to use it unless you're a member of a federally recognized tribe and you're doing it for practicing peyote wow. um, ceremonies. But still, you, now you've got this floodgates opened of, of outsiders who also want to start practicing your religious beliefs yeah. after all this time of, of it being marginalized and suppressed. And if I um, may, I was going to jump in and say real quick that also there's also a uh, economic value mm-hmm. to appropriating spirituality it's become kind of the trend that now spirituality is not only a a political uh, position but it's also a fashion statement you know people are constantly appropriating all kinds of religions because some of the costumes or some of the outfits or some of the uh, practices seem so appealing and you know culturally uh, enriching and colorful and i've noticed that to be probably the greater aspect of the majority of people who don't understand all the political or other kind of influences that all of a sudden now it's kind of a cool thing to be yeah it, it definitely um another example that's kind of uh, that it follows in line with um indigenous religious practices being commodi- um commodified is the um harvesting and selling of white sage sage is a is a big item used by a lot of tribes um in the united states excuse me for smudging for um cleansing purposes and ceremonies and it's now um being over harvested uh to the point where there's there's um very little supply to be gathered in a traditional um natural way a lot of tribes are protective of their growing areas um or traditional sites where white sage grows um because it's being picked by commercial entities to be sold at big box stores um with this idea of selling native spirituality and it it, it's 
false, right? It's a, it, it's yeah. <laughs> not actually native spirituality that that's being sold. It's, it's just being sold to make a buck. Um, but what that does, right, is that that further delegitimizes indigenous spirituality and relegates it to this idea that it, that's what the pagans practice or the heathens practice. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That's what, you know, the other people practiced and that mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it devalues it in this way where it has a lot of meaning to us, sure. but it doesn't have meaning to the pe- the same kind of meaning or the same degree of meaning that people who are appropriating that who are using it. Now, I'm not saying that you can't use white sage as a non-native person. Um, not saying that or sage in general. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that if you're going to use it in a way that's detrimental to the people that it has meaning for, mm. and you're going to use, you're going to attempt to use it in a way that is mimicking what indigenous peoples do with sage, then you're going down the wrong path. You should probably reconsider how you're doing this because wow. you're doing it in a harmful way. So true. Wow. So, so beautifully, uh, described. And that's exactly it. Because usually when we're being uh, educated on some of our faux pas as a society, we're usually told these things in a threatening manner, in a judgmental manner, in a uh, almost belittling and and shaming other people. And I, I think that's probably become one of the most dangerous aspects of our society today. And this is on all sides, in mm-hmm. general, how we have either canceled each other because of our mistakes or because of our ignorance or, uh, you know, and I've said this before, if a four-year-old come and asks you why, how, you explain it to them. You don't tell them, why are you so dumb? Why don't you know this? I know this. Why don't you know this? It's like, well, they're four. So I view people in culture and in society that have had no opportunity to learn some of these things as a four-year-old. So when Mm -hmm. someone comes to me and says, explain to me about such and such, such and such about my own culture. I never, you know, react in a way that says, "Oh my God, you're so dumb," How, or you're, "Oh, that's so offensive." As an mm-hmm. identity, uh, you know, uh, researcher and and lecturer and writer, I recognize the importance of education, and you do that so well, Kyle. As you talk about the religious practices and bringing up the sage, there is another kind of trigger. Um, word or practice, and that's the um, spirit animal, um, mm-hmm. the um, animism, if you will, which comes from the Latin word anima, which is soul, and that is kind of the spirit, the soul. And so many religions around the world have practiced animism that mm-hmm. in English language has now been translated into spirit animal. I don't know how the different native groups and tribes and indigenous people in America and around the world use that particular practice how do you think today the the kind of the words but what's your spirit animal i mean i've used it and uh, lately it's been pointed out to me that oh maybe that's not the appropriate way of saying it how how can we address this particular phenomenon Mm-hmm. Good question. So it, it's interesting when I hear people talk about this because um, for my tribe in particular and for a number of tribes um, in the plateau region of, of the United States um, where there's kind of um, shared cultural aspects, we actually have a word for this, which is Wyakin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tr- more translates into English as guardian spirit, but it's the same concept, um, it, especially in the old days 
and us Perse youth um, would go out um, to the mountains, um, usually about the time, you know, that they're early, mid-teens when they're becoming an adult. And they would go out there for what people today would recognize as, as a vision quest, right, mm-hmm. or what they would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would go out there, they would fast, and they were to stay out there until they had a spiritual connection, um, typically with an animal that would come to them and that would offer their abilities to this person to be so their guardian beautiful. spirit, their life. Oh. Yeah. Now, does and the animal physically appear or is it a vision? It, it could be either. Okay. I've heard stories um, where an animal physically appears. Um, others people, um, you know, have have these visions, um, and I don't want to talk too much about it because it is a sacred practice, Absolutely. and there are some who who might not want these things revealed. But um, sure. you know, by and large, this kind of plays into where I'm going with this. Um, you're not supposed to talk about your Wyakins if you have one um, oh. frivolously. Oh. Um, you need to have respect for them because they grant you their powers to be able to do something, and by talking about them in a frivolous manner, they can take their power away from you. You can lose your Wyakim, um, you know, which is a very detrimental thing to, mm-hmm. to people who have them. Um, so that's why you see, you know, speaking for myself and speaking for uh, for people who, who are in the know about this, right? Why there's kind of a little bit of a hesitation to talk about these things that are, that are taboo um, and why the term spirit animal is problematic um, when it's used in a way that's um, careless or frivolous um, because we can draw we can draw connections to it from our own cultural background but also similar to to the word tribe you know the, the phrase spirit animal has taken on this kind of pop use for you know people who just want to have fun or want to use it um, in, a, in a, a silly way or, or whatever they want to refer to it as um, and generally I'm not going to go out of my way to tell a person that they shouldn't do that. But if there is an opportunity that presents itself to educate a person, I, I might take that chance to say something because mm-hmm. I, you know, I know what people mean when they're saying it. I do. Um, and I, I'm not trying to be overly critical. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that it's not something that shouldn't be addressed, but what I do, what I am saying is that there needs to be room for that education and that room for letting people be people. You know, I'm Absolutely. sure that, I'm sure I make many faux pas myself too, not just with uh, people of other cultures, but even with other natives or mm-hmm. um, other tribes that I'm not accustomed to engaging with. Yeah. Um, you know, f- for example, going back to, uh, my mom and I and getting back connected with our, um, our traditional beliefs, um, our traditional beliefs for uh, Nez Perce and for a lot of people on the plateau um, is the, a, a longhouse religion. It's sometimes it's called the longhouse religion. Sometimes it's called the dreamer religion mm. um, or it's called seven drums. Um, and mm. it's a, uh, it's a faith, right? That, part of you know, the Wyakin is part of, um, but that also has a heavy focus on other customs and traditions really centered around food. Mm. And so, for example, if you go to a seven drums uh, ceremony um, at one of the longhouses, you'll usually go through the ceremony and then afterwards you have a meal around lunchtime. And at the meal, you're supposed to wait 
for the singers to sing a set amount of songs. They sing the songs and then you can go ahead and eat. And in a more traditional setting, because at these meals, you can have um, a lot of different foods, but there are specific traditional foods that you can have at a lot of these meals. They're put in a certain order Mm. on the table. And the last thing that's on the table are huckleberries, right? And you're not supposed to eat those huckleberries until the end when the um when the leader of the longhouse announces that you're allowed to eat them wow so um when we were first getting reconnected and going you know going to these ceremonies um these services and, and speaking with our family um this was at our first meal we didn't know about that and so we accidentally had huckleberries before oh, no. we were allowed to have it right yeah <laughs> and there it was very sweet an elderly um woman an elder right across from us uh she you know instructed us on how to properly do it um oh. and so you know no. i look at i look at it that way yeah. too where there's a lot of things that people do haphazardly they do it without thinking they do it without knowing yeah. right you don't know what you don't know yeah. and the word the phrase spirit animal i think is another example of that um where it doesn't need to be treated overly critical. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not like someone's using a, a race, uh, you know, trying to be racist mm-hmm. or they're trying to right. um, insult you, or it's not like other words like the term redskin or something like that. Right. Um, it, it's now been adopted, as I said earlier, as part of pop culture that people say in a facetious manner. And while it can be annoying at times, mm-hmm. um, I think it is better to take that educational approach yeah. to it. Um, many people don't realize that spirit animals are a real thing because they think it maybe it's a trope or a stereotype something made up or if they do recognize it as as a real thing right they don't know the meaning behind it so i think yeah it is important for people to be educated on that but once again it goes back to that context how is it being used why is it being used when is it being used well and one of the biggest i think issues that i have witnessed in particularly in America, is the lack of connection with heritage because so many Americans, and I mean modern um, Americans with settler and colonizing uh, heritage, uh, or just plain old modern uh, immigrants, specifically from countries that have become so first world and modern, I think there's this disconnection from culture and origin and heritage. And it's so tempting to want to adopt as many things that make us find some kind of connection. And that's where many make the mistake of adopting something that to them is not necessarily recognized as something that belongs to a particular practice or group. Because the spirit animal, if you ask people, they'll say, well, I mean, yeah, the Native Americans use it, but so do the pagans and so do, you know, and they'll point out other cultures. And it's probably true. Uh mm-hmm. Religion in general has that, you know, dreadlocks, for example, that's a big thing Mm -hmm. here in America where uh, people of African descent or black uh, race will claim the dreadlocks as, you know, something that is really symbolic of their culture and heritage. Understandably, if you Mm -hmm. look, though, further and beyond many other cultures in Asia, Southeast Asia, even in Europe, I mean, the Vikings, I mean, the dreadlocks belong to a variety of cultures. So it just depends on where you're coming from. And that's... The bottom line of all this is really trying to understand and not being scared to ask. That's why I'm so thrilled you're here to talk, because I'm one that loves to be asked any kind of question. And I definitely love asking questions, and I appreciate being able to talk about these things. Before we 
get really close to the end of our time together, uh, there are a couple of things I want to make sure that we talk about because they are important to you. And I don't know that many of us know much about them. Specifically, the um, there was something that you had mentioned to me when we were talking about the implications of the S-C-O-T-U-S uh, rulings. And I don't know if it's pronounced in its uh, lettering or if it's actually a word that is pronounced, but basically the effects of tribal sovereignty. And I know you talked a little bit about it, but there's something recently, a case in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, where it recognizes indigenous people. Um, and you talked a little bit about it generically. Do you want to mm -hmm. update us on what's going on right now that we need to make sure that we shift our attention to? Yeah. So, uh, this was a really big, um, Supreme court case, um, SCOTUS case that affected tribal sovereignty in Oklahoma, um, pertaining to what used to be called Indian territory. Um, now Oklahoma, um, when it was originally conceptualized as a territory was seen as a location to remove tribes to. That's why it was called Indian territory. So tribes from um, the Southeast, um, uh, some from the, from the uh, kind of more Northeast. Um, and as the uh, United States started expanding further westward, would uh, remove and relocate Indian tribes to Indian territory. Um, and there are several treaties that uphold this and that recognize the land as such. What happened in this recent um, Supreme Court case involving Oklahoma um, called the McGirt case is the there was a defendant who had committed crimes um, on reservation or on what is recognized as an Indian census area. Um, over time, when Oklahoma became a state, Indian territory was de facto unrecognized, um, disestablished. Wow. Um, the state, when it became a state in the early 1900s, assumed that its state incorporation as a state would eliminate the uh, existence of Indian territory. Wow. And again, in that de facto sense in practice, that's what happened. Up until this case, the Supreme Court case, the McGirt case, um, an individual had committed a crime in one of these um, territories that used to be recognized as Indian territory, which was an Indian reservation, um, committed heinous crimes, not a good person. Um, and I believe they themselves was also a member of one of these tribes in, in Oklahoma. What they argued was that they had committed their crimes on reservation. And so rather than being tried by the state, they should be tried by the federal government because the federal government, due to the Major Crimes Act, which was um, legislated in 1885, assumes criminal jurisdiction over major crimes in Indian country and on Indian territory, on Indian reservations, Indian land in general. And so the crimes he had committed would fall under juris uh, federal jurisdiction to be tried in federal court. This eventually got appealed and appealed, and it made its way up to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, this person did commit the crimes on an Indian reservation because the reservation had never formally been disestablished by Congress. Now, in Indian wow. federal law and policy, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of history. So the short story of it is that um, 
only Congress, through the plenary power doctrine, has the ability to disestablish a reservation. Only Congress. And they have to do it in an expressed, intentional manner. They, wow. That's how they have – they can't say – they can't say say something haphazardly. They can't, you know, like, oh, we thought it was. No, Congress has to expressly say this is no longer a reservation. Wow. They never did that for Indian Territory. And so because of that, the Supreme Court – essentially removed that de facto unrecognition and reestablished the recognition of these reservations in Oklahoma. And it's a big case because that's half of Oklahoma. <laughs> half of Oklahoma has wow. now been Yes. Now this is mostly coming from implication because the um where this had happened specifically was the Muskogee Creek Reservation. And so for sure, their reservation is recognized. The implication being because none of the other reservations were disestablished, they should also be re-recognized and likely are considered as such um, as part of precedent, um, implied precedent. So what will happen in Oklahoma? It's unsure. There's a lot of things that are up in the air as mm. to what this really means. Mm. Um, I do know so far, keeping up with the case um, and the aftermath of the case, that the tribes and the state more or less don't want things to change in terms of practice. Of course. Um, because for the last hundred or so years, it's been like that. And so it would be a massive um, increase to the responsibilities of the tribes to handle all of a sudden this administrative and jurisdictional authority that they might not have the ability to do so. Um, what this case also really pertained to was more or less jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction. So while there are probably implications and wider effects that can be made re regarding taxes, regarding civil jurisdiction, um, what this really does is that it puts criminal jurisdiction back into the ballpark of the tribes and of the federal government, um, which could ultimately see um, hundreds of cases in Oklahoma retried wow. under different um, different settings, Absolutely. different circumstances. Yeah. So That's the implications are big. The effects, the like the the. Um, pragmatic effects that were produced from it are kind of small, but it's got Indian country really excited because of those implications and what kind of precedent this sets, plus an affirmation of tribal sovereignty. Absolutely. And tying this back into our, our grander conversation that we're having here, you know, um, what happens to Indian tribes is very important for, for American citizens to look at because it likely affects them too. Not always, but in this case, right, it now changes the jurisdictional level as to what happens um, in Oklahoma if a person commits a crime on reservation or if they if it's an Indian person who commits a crime on reservation or an Indian on Indian crime. That's a whole topic in of itself. Absolutely. But, yeah. um, it ties back into how the existence of indigenous peoples, right, who as of the 2010 census make up uh, less than 2% or depending on how you define the define an indigenous person or a Native American, less than 1% of the population can actually affect the greater majority of people. Um, yeah. And why sovereignty in all aspects, whether it's political sovereignty, spiritual sovereignty, cultural sovereignty, um, is a big uh, issue for tribes to consider today. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, you said it 
just here towards the end, that this also points to the the percentage of Native Americans or indigenous identifying people in the country, which is unfortunately a small percentage due to the, um, you know, the decline in the population in the American indigenous peoples. We know that that all started in 1492 with the arrival of Columbus. And that's, you know, it started there and all the diseases that were coming from Europe and other parts of Europe that were, uh, you know, bringing and imposing this change in lifestyle to the indigenous people, the European Mm -hmm. colonization and taking over the land, but then warfare. I mean, that's kind of claimed and recognized history, and yet we don't talk enough about it. And the percentage Mm -hmm. that we have left now with us within the community, trying to really provide space for the indigenous people to expand, uh, not just for the space and the land, but also expand in their ability to practice and grow their own presence and and, uh, identity. And one of those things I I do want to ask you about this is within, and I know that you you don't claim to be an ambassador for all Native peoples. You've stated that really beautifully and, and very eloquently. But one of the things that I think a lot of people wonder about is within the Native community, communities, there is this, um, I think there's a, a lack of understanding from the outside about what it means to be or identify as a Native American. So we know that in America, many people who um, you know, have been here, or their families have been here for many, many centuries, or at least, you know, couple of centuries might have, you know, blood from this, a gene from that, and all of these uh, blended, I think, existences. So how does one claim or identify as part Native American? And the other question that somewhat ties into it, and that's part of community and the modern Native American community or communities, because I emphasize that there's a difference between the two, uh, where, for example, the LGBTQ community, how do they belong? How do some of the racially mixed people who are also part Native American uh, find their place and their home within the indigenous uh, family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of in, indigeneity today, that's like the question, right? Um, yeah, so I, as as stated, you know, I can really only speak from my own experience, my opinions on, on this. Um, it, it's a kind of topic that takes up whole books. So to try and yeah. condense it into the time we have left, I'll, I'll try. But it definitely is something that warrants a lot of research for people who are interested. And I'd love to have you back and we can talk more about it for sure. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> uh, so to kind of just say, you know, how people identify, how they see themselves in their background is up to them. Um, but I think it's much more of a collaborative or collective process than at least us in the West are accustomed to. Um, And what I mean by that is that for many indigenous peoples, your identity is not just contingent on how you see yourself, but also by how others see you. And now not in a judgment kind of way, but in a community approval kind of way. So indigenous identity can be 
um, can be looked at from multiple angles and how someone chooses to define someone as an indigenous person um, is going to depend on the person and their circumstances and how they're perceiving someone through these different um, lenses. So for example, one of the more common ways that people in general identify with a particular group, right, is through racial categorization um, through their blood quantum Mm -hmm. and blood quantum as it concerns American Indians is a colonial concept that was implemented um, by Europeans and later Americans that was an attempt to define a person by their uh, pedigree, by their ancestry and their connection to it. Mm. Now, there are a lot of Indians who use blood quantum. They believe in blood quantum. Um, I myself don't, I don't agree with blood quantum. Mm -hmm. I I think it's a concept meant to commit paper genocide to essentially erase us, um, in a percentage off the map out out of existence. And the reason blood quantum is such a hot topic issue in Indian country is because many tribes use that for their enrollment criteria. I would even reckon say, reckon to say the majority of tribes use blood quantum as the primary component um, that you have to meet to be eligible for citizenship in a tribe. Oh. Um, and then including my tribe. Uh, so most tribes, um, you know, I, I've seen is usually about a quarter blood. You have to have a quarter Indian blood. Um, and a lot of times it's specific to that tribe. It has to be a quarter specific tribe mm. to be eligible for enrollment. And there could be additional things too. Um, the Cherokee Nation, for example, um, they operate on lineal descendancy, meaning that as long as you can trace back an ancestor to a census roll document, the Dawes Rolls, um, which was taken uh, back in the early 1900s, as long as you can prove an ancestor's on that roll, you're eligible for citizenship. So mm. it's not dependent on Um, But for my tribe, it is dependent on blood quantum that you have to have a quarter Nez Perce blood in order to be eligible for enrollment. Um, And now, again, it's a hot topic issue for a lot of Indians. And speaking for myself, being fully transparent, I am not enrolled in my tribe, actually. Mm. Um, I, of Nez Perce blood, I am 730 seconds, meaning that I'm one second the minimum requirement that prevents that prevents me from being eligible for enrollment but i do have descendancy recognized descendancy um because my mom my grandma my immediate um family are enrolled in the tribe i do have a letter from the tribe that verifies me as a descendant wow okay that's fantastic right so um you know i say that because it's a it's a very convoluted a very complex topic of discussion. And now there are some people who might hear that and say, well, then I'm not native because I'm not enrolled in a federally recognized tribe. But then this comes in where I'm talking about the community perception. You know, when we really start to define and talk about identities and ethnicity and what it means to be a part of a community, I grew up on a reservation. I grew up going to an Indian church. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, you know, I go to sweats. I mm-hmm. go to, I follow the traditional um, practices and beliefs of uh, my traditional religion of my people. Um, I participate and I'm active in indigenous communities. I'm fighting for indigenous rights. Mm-hmm. I, I, at home, I practice um, our, our particular beliefs. So, you know, even though I might not have that card, that piece of plastic that recognizes me uh, as a political member or citizen to my tribe, 
to me, I believe I meet the qualifications of what our ancestors would have considered someone to be a, tri- a right. member of the tribe. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And there, there are people who will disagree with me on that, and I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, you know, I try to be transparent about these things because – as I said earlier, I reject this notion or this concept of blood quantum that's a colonial conception that when you study the history of it was implemented as a way for tribes to bleed themselves out of existence. Oh, yeah. Agreed. And this yeah, goes back even further to the beginning of our conversation where I talked about how the federal recognition process in of itself is a colonial system where even if it has some utility for tribes to prevent um, – fake tribes from popping up and trying to take advantage of these services and programs made available to um, legitimate Indian tribes. Mm. It's still problematic in nature in that it's a colonial actor trying to decide um, if a tribe is a tribe in of themselves when it's really that tribe who should be able to, to demonstrate that and stand on its own merits. Absolutely. I mean, we go back to the whole having power and being empowered mm-hmm. by your own presence and your own identity and your own running of things, really. I mean, that's what Mm -hmm. it boils down to. Right, exactly. And so, you know, blood quantum is one way that a lot of tribes do it. I reject that. Um, You know, I I largely see indigenous identity being based on your relationships and your cultural practices. So I can prove my ancestry. Mm -hmm. I've got no problem doing that. Um, I can prove, you know, I can prove For example, going all the way back to um, one of my relatives who fought in the Nez Perce War of 1877. I I have documentation showing that. Um, And, you know, for at least for at least for plateau Indians. Right. That's a lot of cred right there when you can you can pinpoint to your ancestors who fought in that in that war. Um, And to me, that's what. That's what gives me my credibility, along with my life experiences. Um, you know, I talk to many natives who are enrolled, and I can relate to them. I share the same experiences, and this, you know, this gets further into this idea of race as well, race and ethnicity, and our perception. By and large, I'm perceived as a Native American, as an American Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Uh, Sometimes I've been misconstrued for other things, um, mm-hmm. Mexican, even Japanese once mm-hmm. by a Mexican person, which was really an interesting <laughs> situation. Oh. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not typically seen as a white person. I don't believe myself as being um, white presenting. Um, perhaps in some contexts I could be white passing, mm-hmm. um, but even – even among the indigenous communities that I uh, that I that I'm in association with that I'm part of, um, I'm typically not really seen as white passing either. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's funny because my sister, who has a different dad who was native, um, he's passed away, um, but he was Quilu. Um, technically, she has more blood quantum than me. And mm-hmm. yet she has a much lighter complexion than I do yeah. um, and lighter hair than I do. Genetics? And th- exactly. Then it gets into this whole discussion about genetics. And it, it's a very complex topic. And it, it, like I said, you know, depending on what a person believes, what they've studied, how they've been brought up, they will use a combination of these things that we've been talking about here to create their own criteria for how they judge a person to be a member of something. So – as I said before, for me, what matters is 
your relationships, mm-hmm. your community mm-hmm. um, affiliation, your your you know the ability to prove your connection to yeah. the group of people you're claiming, um, and your your ability to practice those customs, but also the community recognition of you. Absolutely. Does the community claim you as a member as well? Yeah. Even if barring for tribes, at least barring this idea of enrollment, I can say I can go to Lapway where my family's from and I'm not looked at any differently. I can tell them who my family is They're like, Oh, your auntie works for the clinic. Oh, your auntie works in wow. accounting at, at the, at the casino. Oh, your cousin was a tribal cop. Um, or, you know, or your cousin here, you know, they worked right. So it's like, yeah. I can prove that I can go there and I can feel accepted, um, walk the walk kind of thing, um, not just talk the talk. And based on that, you know, I would say anybody who meets that kind of criteria, they themselves qualify as identifying as a member of, of, of that community they yeah. come from. It, making exceptions too for people who have been disconnected and taken away from their cultures because that happens during the 60s and 70s it was a big thing for um uh state agencies to to literally kidnap um indian tribes or uh, indian children from their families and place them in white homes it was like 25 percent of uh during that time period of all indian children were were being kidnapped from their homes and being put in white homes and that was what um the indian child welfare act was eventually legislated to help fight against absolutely so so you know when we're talking identity we need to be nuanced we need to acknowledge the complexities behind it recognizing there are people who have legitimate reasons for why they're not connected to their cultures and then once again context understanding that context yeah. behind their situation and and remembering that we're all human so i'll, I'll end on this final <laughs> That's the thing bottom line it, it is i'll end on this final thing most traditional words for tribes for themselves you know for my people for nez Perce, it's nimipu it translates into the people or the real people and that's what the majority, from my studies, yeah. the majority of tribe names translate into them for themselves. Something about the people, the people of the grass, the people of the water, the people. And what that speaks to me, right, is that what indigen- indigenous peoples, what indigeneity is all about is recognizing our inherent personhood that exists in everyone. And you go back far enough, you know, speaking in the words of John Trudell, a great Native American activist and poet, mm-hmm. you go back far enough we're all indigenous. Yeah. Yes, of course, because we all came from the land in which we originated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have to say one thing I did not anticipate in our conversation today, to realize that there is this particular topic around identity, which is my favorite subject, which is my kind of specialty and lane. I would love to invite you back on one of my spinoff episodes, which is I Want You to Think, and I would love for you and I to really hone in and focus on talking more about the meaning of identity within the Native culture, but also where it expands into the American culture in general, and then what that means, because I know you've done your research for your own personal uh, studies, but also that has helped you have a broader understanding of identity. So promise me you'll come back from my I Want You to Think episode and we can focus exclusively on identity uh, on identity conversations. I'd love that. Would That'd that be, be awesome? Yeah. Kyle, this has been unbelievably educational, insanely enlightening. I feel like I've expanded my brain in 
a direction that I really never thought that I would have the opportunity to in such a kind of a humbling way and in, in a really in, enriching way. So I, I really want to thank you. And I'm positive that all the listeners feel exactly the same way. And I, I think we need to raise more and more voices like yours. And I thank you for being such a kind, compassionate and uh, really patient educator. And um, And thank you for being here. Yes. Before you take off completely, though, I will say, I love to play the uh, rapid fire speed round question. So yep. will you just bear with me? We'll do this real quick. Sure. Because I can't not have fun with you at the end of all of this serious talk, um, which was so important. But uh, first question that comes, or I'm sorry, first answer that comes to my question. Night or day? Day. Describe yourself in three words only. Uh, loyal, transparent, accountable. Wonderful. Your spirit animal, if you choose to share, but now I understand that that's probably not appropriate to share. So, <laughs> so we'll skip that. Oh, oh, let, let's say this. Uh, favorite animal, uh, like pet. Do you have a pet? What's your... Oh, man. Relationship? I love penguins. Yeah. I love okay. penguins, but also I love salmon, too, and I love raccoons. I, I like a lot of animals. Because <laughs> I love eagle. animals. Hey, eagle. I'll, eagle. I'll settle in the eagle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think I think our, our acknowledgement of animals is so important just as, as a living entity. Um, mm-hmm. Favorite nature spot? Favorite nature spot? Honestly, it would have to be the hills of Lapway, where, mm-hmm. my, where my family comes from. Wow, that's beautiful. Uh, city that you'd like to visit that you've never visited anywhere in the world? Ooh. Uh, do former cities count? Sure. Uh, let's do the Chihokia Mounds in the Mississippi area. It used to be a, a, an ancient indigenous civilization um, oh. in the Miss- Mississippi area. Wow, that, that sounds amazing. Um, favorite artist? Uh, what type of artist? Any, like, I'm, let's say musician or like uh, the performing arts. Uh, performing arts, I would have to say favorite group, favorite drum, native dr- drum group would have to be Northern Cree. Favorite visual artist is Stephen Paul Judd. Okay. We'll have to look those up. Uh, hot or cold foods? Hot. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> favorite season? Oh, summer. Okay. And then uh, name your number one hobby or like pastime. What's your favorite thing to do when you have time off? History. Uh, no surprise <laughs> there. But the very last question, the most important question of all that everyone gets asked, and we are taking an informal survey, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Uh, half the time. <laughs> That's, that is the most diplomatic answer we have received to date. Because sometimes I like it, but Hannah, my girlfriend, she likes pineapple on pizza, and I'll stomach it because sometimes it's okay. But after I have it once, I'll, I'll you know I'll wait for a while. It's not necessary for me. I'm with you 100. percent I'm more indignant as an Italian because it doesn't belong there. But if it's on pizza and the, my sons are having it, I'm like, eh, I'll have a bite. So, Kyle, this was amazing. I will not say goodbye as a goodbye because first of all, I'm probably going to see you. Um, in our work uh, situation, but I am really looking forward to having you back on an I Want You to Think episode and really dive into identity and identity um, as a concept. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a good time. Absolutely. (laughs) 
This podcast is produced and recorded by Dante Falk, edited and mixed by Eros Falk, original music by Dante and Eros Falk, recorded in Olympia, Washington at Casa Nostra Studios. Visit the website, jasminefalkdickerson.com. Ciao for now. Thank you.